Welcome to Funny Old World, a podcast hosted by me, Juliet Kinsman, and Simon London. It's us sharing entertaining conversations which make it easier to better understand the causes, symptoms, and hopefully solutions to the climate emergency with a little much-needed laughter. Because there is a climate emergency. In each episode, we'll be discussing serious topical sustainability stories and chat to some of the world's most thought-provoking experts. And because, let's face it, Everyone's feeling a little sustainability fatigue, so we also need to know the facts. And goodness knows we need a little humour in our eco-anxiety-riddled lives. Juliet is a journalist and a sustainability expert, author and travel editor, and I'm a media pundit, but most importantly intellectually curious, which hopefully means I'll be asking questions that you, the listeners, want to know the answer to as much as I do. Each episode, we're going to tackle a complex topic, weigh up the trade-offs, and hopefully empower all to make better decisions when striving for impactability. These conversations were made possible by Weaver, a sustainability management system based on the framework of the long run. Go to weaver.earth to find out more. So, Juliet, it was really important to you that when we did this series of podcasts that we dedicate one of the episodes to the media or, as Posh Spice used to call it, the media. Did she? She did. did. The media. The media. Um, why is that? Why did you want to talk about the media? Well, you know, I think it's often neglected how we source all this information when, when it comes to the climate emergency. And you know what? We both work in the media. Yeah, that's true. Um, so when you talk about the media, are you talking about broadcast, TV, print? You know, you're hitting, yeah, you're hitting one of my triggers because it's so generalized. People talk about or they demonize the media, broadcasting, publishing, the internet, social media, all of that's bundled in together. And often people will say, oh, I don't trust the media. I'm a member of the media. I, I take a great responsibility to be a trustworthy journalist and, and share helpful, verified, fact-checked information. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. But I think that people are getting their information from so many different sources at the moment. Newspapers are in decline. I mean, obviously, a lot of that information is behind paywalls now. Do you know that only 2% of the information consumed is that which exists behind a paywall? And generally, that information will be the best quality journalism. So it really shows how starved many people are of high quality journalism. But then I guess the flip side of that is that... In your pocket, you're carrying around a device that allows you to get information from anywhere in the world. I mean, I don't know about you, but I try and follow as many different newspapers and media outlets as possible. And I really, really try to follow people that I wouldn't normally listen to totally, just, just so that I can get angry when I read <laughs> about what they have to say. So you can, you can shake yourself out of your echo chamber. It's yeah. so important. I'm also getting slight anxiety, though, because indeed, we have all this information coming at us, so much information. I do worry about, you know, what are the sources? Do we consider who the brand is or, or what the source is for the information we're consuming? I don't think we do. I don't think people do. They just say, oh, I read this or I heard this. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the worst things I think about the social media platforms that the people with the loudest voices or the biggest following, they are allowed to go onto social media platforms where, let's face it, you're not going to change anybody's mind. If you are in one camp, 
then you are generally listening or being served up what you already believe. Right. I don't think anybody ever went on social media and tweeted, hey, you've got a point there. I'm really sorry. I'm going to change my mind. That that very rarely happens. You know, oh gosh, that's so interesting. But we should be all saying and thinking that more. Maybe that just doesn't, it, people like to shock. It's it's just, I think maybe, is it to do with neuroscience? Which chemicals are sparked from what reactions? Possibly, possibly. I mean, I don't want to be all virtue signaling that. I have done that before and I have sort of tentatively said to somebody, I don't really understand what you're talking about. Could you tell me a bit more? <laughs> I did that to one person and he turned around and said, you're such a moron if you don't know about this stuff and blocked me. So I've always been a bit wary about doing that since was then. It, was it about the sh- tying your shoelaces again? It was Simon. about tying my shoelaces. <laughs> or was it recycling? Because that's forgivable. <laughs> but I'm not, but I'm so much more informed. I'm so much better informed, thanks to you. Um, no, I mean, one of the things that I remember seeing uh, not so long ago is somebody said I have heard that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle Ooh, I love Harry and Meghan decided to do XYZ and obviously it was a negative story because there's so much negative stuff about them on social media but what was kind of quite heartening to see was a lot of people underneath it said you have heard that doesn't sound like a responsible source However, a lot of other people so it's were like saying... Gossip. It's ba- yeah. basically like totally like gossip. I can just go out there and say what I like about... Well, that's that's part of the climate problem, isn't it? And that whole discussion. Um, I think we have a huge responsibility as citizens to be aware of the wider world and really think about what we're consuming. And, and we're so lucky in the UK because at least with our broadcasters, they're regulated by Ofcom. That's enforced. So if, if anyone's broadcasting absolute nonsense and they aren't balanced and fair, they'll, they'll, they'll get fined or taken off air. Newspapers, different story, right? They're not regulated in the same way and they definitely can come from a certain political standpoint or have an agenda according to who owns them? I mean, ownership, that's a big part of all these conversations. And they just want to generate, we all know, they, they want traffic, clickbait. Um, yeah, but as a journalist, I certainly follow a code of ethics, but there's no proof that I do, right? No, that's true. <laughs> I didn't know what to answer then. As I'd like to sit here and go, no, there's no proof at all that you have any ethics whatsoever. <laughs> Zero qualifications, no ethics. <laughs> so to bring it back to the sustainability chat, what do you think is preventing us from not having global coverage about what is definitely going on? And we know it's going on because in my world, people are trying to sell me electric cars. People are trying to tell me to recycle. McDonald's is sort of trying to give me plant-based burgers. Give them to you. <laughs> trying to sell me well, you, plant-based. you, Simon, <laughs> you could do with a few more of these plant-based oh burgers, God, mate. That's so, so <laughs> shaming. Um, but the, yeah, so in my world, I can see or I can see around me that everyone recognises that something is going on. Okay. And yet there seems to be sort of quite a vocal opposition against it. And I just don't understand why. Me neither. So that's why we're having this conversation. You know, I think too many people take to podcasts, probably not knowing either, but spouting uh, sort of their opinions. Um, in terms of sustainability, you're exactly right. You know, who's covering it well? It's it's definitely happening around us. 2021, I remember there was a point in um, the summer when every single newspaper in the UK had apocalyptic images and headlines about the climate emergency. I thought, wow, we've woken up to it. Everyone's going to pay attention. But actually, it didn't inspire as much behavioural change as I thought it would. And the narrative overall hasn't changed as much as I thought it would. Now, it brings me to think of 
Oscar Wilde's quote. So we're going back, you know, well over a century. And he said, the public has an insatiable curiosity to know everything except what is worth knowing. So are we to blame? Are we, is it because we don't want all these, these as, you know, tales of doom and gloom around the sustainability? Well, there is this idea that society gets the news it deserves. I've heard that before. So if we weren't so interested in, as you said before, gossip or tittle-tattle or what our celebrities are getting up to, then we wouldn't be served up that sort of information. But I don't know whether I believe it's such a was a closed loop well oh gosh you're bringing that into this conversation you are very good you're running that green thread through what we have to remember is everything works very differently now it's a digital landscape so i hear of journalists being tasked or given uh, sort of performance indicators linked to how many clicks they get which means they're going to write about and share stories about the biggest most popular topics. So that'll be, what do you think? Maybe Kim Kardashian, maybe the Royals, you mentioned the Royals. So that's going to get them lots of clicks because that's going to actually reflect on their bonuses or how they perform professionally. And that's really worrying because unfortunately the articles that are could be a little bit boring or about science reports, but very, very key information in the climate conversation won't get as much attention or airtime, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. I mean, the salacious stuff will rise to the top and people are generally time poor. So yeah, they'll go for the big headlines. That business model, that kind of gossip as business model is quite frightening, isn't it? What we're talking about is is traffic. We're talking about what's, in the past we'd have said, what sells newspapers, it's headlines. And now it's really about what gets those clicks. And so it's about balancing it, I always think. It's about balancing the stories that we have to be telling because that's our responsibility as the media to help people and presenting it in a, in a way that we hope's interesting and entertaining. And talking about droughts and heat waves isn't always what people crave. But these are global environmental issues that either are affecting or are going to affect each and every one of us. To not be flagging it up as such, is that lazy journalism or do you believe that there's something sinister at work? And I'm not, I don't want to go into the realm sure. of conspiracy theories much as I love a good oh, conspiracy go on, theory. Which is your favourite? You must have a favourite. My favourite conspiracy theory is <laughs> Donald Trump um, was interviewed recently and suggested that the FBI maybe raided his home looking for Hillary Clinton's emails, oh. which I just thought was brilliant. Like, why would he have Hillary Clinton's emails? That's what somebody asked him. In he, a went, box. he went, oh, I don't know. Maybe they were going to plant them. And it's like, stop talking. Stop talking. And also emails were like printed off yeah, in a box yeah. and labeled. He's a one man conspiracy what? theory. Oh, he's a conspiracy machine. But 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 that's a good point, right? But he gets the clicks because, you know, even whatever your politics is, whatever it is, when he was voted out, even if you were, you know, fiercely anti-Trump's ideologies or values, you kind of miss the guy. <laughs> oh, no. He brought me out and honestly, but oh, I, I no. had anxiety. I used to have anxiety reading about him and... But I can't listen to the voice. But what I mean is you kind of... Jaina. Why are we at war with China? <laughs> Trade war with China. But but do you think it's something more sinister? Because if I were a conspiracy theorist, and I'm about to sound a bit like one. Do they sound, sound like that? Go on, let's, can you do a conspiracy theorist voice? Well, 
it's pretty obvious that the big corporations, big pharma, big tech, big pharma, big PH oil, and FA, all that lot, big ag, they're probably paying right. for yeah. Harry and Meghan and Trump <laughs> and other people Hillary. to do stories because right. then it keeps the climate change off the front pages and they can continue making all their money from oil, etc., etc., etc. Well, so everything's interconnected. It really, honestly, when you look at the world and, and who's in charge, ownership, their agendas, there's so many, there are so many sinister things at play behind the scenes. We know that. All I care about and what all I can talk about and focus on is there is science-based or factual information about the climate emergency that we need distributed so people are empowered and given agency to improve their lives or lobby the right people to ensure that we're all living in a way that helps tackle the climate emergency. That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it does make sense. Why is that not happening? Well, there's, I mean, do you know the difference between misinformation and, and disinformation? One is married, one is not. <laughs> well, I always love talking to Jenny King. She's head of civic action and education at Institute of Strategic Dialogue. She provides regular briefings for government departments, UNESCO. She is as literate on media literacy as a spokesperson on climate uh, mis and disinformation can get. Should we chat to Jenny? It would seem churlish not to. So the, the major difference between mis and disinformation is one of intentionality. When we talk about misinformation, it is the spreading of misleading or false content, but with no intent to harm. So imagine during the pandemic, I'm sure every single person listening has an example of a relative in a group chat or a friend on social media or a colleague or a peer posting something about how you could cure yourself of COVID or how you could prevent yourself from getting infected. And that was or probably an earnest attempt to protect those around them, to make sure that people didn't get sick. However, the end result can end up being the same, which is they cause harm. Disinformation is a willful effort to deceive the public. And there are a number of different motivations or rationales that, that might lie behind that. And I think it's important to say that disinformation in and of itself isn't homogenous. So some people are spreading disinformation for economic reasons because there is a massive market and there are massive financial incentives for that kind of content, particularly in the social media space. So it is genuinely just a way of generating a revenue stream. For others, there is a personal grievance or agenda there. You know, maybe they are people who, to quote Batman, you know, just like to watch the world burn or who like to be online trolls or feel some sense of resentment to society and want to see those fractures be built. For others, there is a very clear political agenda in that promoting that disinformation is likely to change public opinion in one direction or another on key policy areas. So there are a number of different motivations, but the difference between the two is one of intentionality. And it's why certainly at ISD, we are generally more hesitant to use the term disinformation unless we can substantiate that claim. Because really, if you're going to use that term, you need to be able to prove intent or improve will to harm on the part of the perpetrator. So where is disinformation most noticeable? So I think there is definitely a fixation on social media and a large proportion of the research that we have been doing has certainly focused on the influences and the vectors for harm across digital platforms. But one of the things that's emerged from that is the continuing relationship 
with traditional media, the fourth estate, the press, whatever you want to call it, but the institutions of the media who, although we like to talk about them being irrelevant, do actually still play a very critical role in defining public opinion and the public mandate around climate issues. And what we're seeing is particularly in the US and the UK context, you have a couple of outlets who end up becoming content hubs for a global disinformation ecosystem. Outlets like the Daily Mail, uh, the Telegraph in the UK, in the US, the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, obviously, others like Sky News Australia. And I think what's really interesting is how those outlets are playing off their editorial versus their mainstream reporting off of each other. Because what they'll often do is have quite sober analysis of the climate debate and climate policy happening in their regular breaking news sections. And you won't necessarily find really egregious content in those sections, nothing that that goes out and out into the disinformation space. It might even be good investigative journalism um, or good reporting on the state of affairs in this policy space. However, they then square that circle by inviting the most polarizing and contrarian pundits to write op-eds in their editorial pages. And the Wall Street Journal is a perfect example of this, because in almost every respect, it is seen as being one of the most prestigious institutions, particularly in analyzing fiscal and economic issues. And the energy transition obviously sits and intersects with that space, which gives them the opportunity to be a major influencer of public opinion. Exactly. Who do we shame or slam and who do we celebrate? One of the major arguments that we make in the report is around focusing on repeat offenders as a key axis of the response. The the conversation around social media always gets pivoted or thrown off course by a question of content moderation. So the idea that you pick out each individual tweet or Facebook post, you sort of hold it up in front of an environmentalist and say, well, would you allow this? Would you be censoring this? That is a distraction because we're actually talking about the architecture and the infrastructure of social media sites, who they privilege and who they disadvantage. And if you're talking about repeat offenders, so people like Lois Perry, who is the head of this group, Car26, or Julia Hartley Brewer from Talk Radio or Nigel Farage, those with a demonstrated and documented past of spreading disinformation that has then been fact-checked, is that there would be a force multiplier effect in dealing with those accounts. And the reason why that's the case is that many of those people are not just spreading mis- and disinformation around climate issues. It's not the case in every instance, but it is increasingly common that those who are spreading the worst forms of climate denial and climate delayist arguments also intersect with other conspiracist and extremist movements. So by looking at these accounts as key nodes of disinformation writ large, and by by dealing with those accounts, you would really take the legs out from under the disinformation ecosystem, because it is so reliant on these very dedicated and very loud voices within the public conversation. Mm -hmm. And you know, one really good statistic is when we're talking about the disproportionate impact that a very small group of repeat offenders can have on seeding and pushing this adversarial content. So we looked at a time frame of the 25th of October to the 21st of November, 2021. So basically the immediate run up to the duration of and the immediate aftermath of the COP26 climate summit. And tweets and quote tweets from just 16 accounts amassed over half a million likes and retweets, so interactions on on climate narratives. And that, by comparison, exceeded the combined total of 148 
other prominent skeptic and denial accounts on Twitter. So that's the funnel. That's how imbalanced, even within the disinformation ecosystem, you're talking about a very, very small group of people that are able to spread this content and to give credibility to each other's content. What's really interesting is everybody has an agenda. And so therefore, it's trying to work out who are the people you can trust in this. Somebody who has gone from being light entertainment presenter to he's really kind of seen by many people as an unfettered voice of reason, though that in itself is debatable, is Russell Brand. He has sidestepped what we and he would call the mainstream media to land up on YouTube where he has a following of six million people and he's putting up videos every day that are in his mind and his world challenging the status quo and trying to give forward a truth that he sees is not tied to any political side. He says he's rejecting the right, he's rejecting the left, and he's just trying to ask questions and try and get to the truth. But he has his own version of the truth, and it's sort of contextualised in the left are biased and the right are biased, but he is biased in himself. And it's all coming from a position of being quite... um, what's the word, sceptical. So what we have to, I guess, whatever your feelings are about Russell Brand, what we have to salute him for if he is doing this is shaking his audience out of a out of a torpor where they're not aware of what's going on, making them think a bit more deeply. Is he prodding them to think more originally and critically for themselves? Or is he really just spouting his own opinions and presenting those as exactly as you say, his version of the truth? Because that's what I worry about. I really think, uh, what does the world need? The world needs accurate, honest information, not opinion. We've got so much opinion. What do they say about opinion? It's like arseholes. Everyone's got one. (laughs) 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 I don't know if we're allowed to put that in. But, um, you know, I think the problem with Russell Brand is he's become a bit cult-like himself don't you think yeah so so i think the other issue is for me i think there needs to be regulation i think you know anybody if they have a loud voice and a big audience they have to take responsibility that they go through a series of checks and balances well with that in mind let's speak to sarah whitehead who is the deputy head of news gathering at sky hi i'm sarah whitehead i work at sky news um where i'm the deputy head of news gathering But importantly for this podcast, I look after our climate coverage. So how can we trust Sky News's coverage? But I think what's really important for people to understand is that as a broadcaster in the UK, we are regulated. And I think that lots of people don't know that. Uh, We're regulated by the Ofcom Broadcasting Code. And so our job as journalists, is to go out and find interesting stories to tell people about, make sure that people understand the issues involved. But our job is to go out there, find all that stuff, and then check it. Check that what we're saying, what we're telling people, what we're putting out there is right. And if there are questions about it, to kind of highlight those questions and make sure that people really understand that we're questioning it as well. We actually are quite proud of being regulated. And it's a really different thing to the newspapers. The newspapers in this country are 
a completely how they work is is completely different to how the broadcasters work. I would really encourage everybody to really understand where they're getting their news from. The big kind of broadcast brands in this country are all regulated. Which news sources around the world, for our international listeners in particular, do you think we can actually trust when it comes to seeking climate information? Well, I'd, I'd recommend exactly the same thing. Understand what's happening with different um, or different broadcasters or organisations or newspapers or wherever it is that you're getting your information. Understand where they're from. The joy of today is that you can access news organisations anywhere. You know, wherever you are, pretty much, there's a few places you can't, but pretty much wherever you are, you can access news organisations from, you know, in the US, in South Korea, in South Africa, in the Middle East, and here in the UK. So obviously I'd say this, but, you know, watch and listen to Sky News. But we, you know, we really work hard and, and try to make absolutely sure that everybody understands that what they're listening is has been checked, checked and double checked. So how do we get people to listen to this information and act? We have to try everything. That's our job is to try everything. And, um, and at Sky, we do it with screens and data. We do it by going to where, you know, things are happening, like I've just described about Nigeria this week. Um, we do it by showing people what's happening in their own homes, in their own streets, in their own, you know, organization. We, we, we really work hard. Also, I think really important is how people can get involved because people always love that. We ran a very big campaign about single-use plastics and it was extraordinary. You know, when something's really tangible, you actually get something, you can really get something going. People really want to kind of feel and look at stuff and understand how they can get involved. So that's really important. But actually, it's about trying everything, explaining everything clearly, being right, being fast, being agile, and being really creative and making sure that it just becomes part of the conversation. The other thing is that you did a brilliant um, episode about language. And I think that that is absolutely crucial. There is so much jargon in the world of climate. There is so much jargon and we need to get rid of all of it. Adaptation, mitigation, all this stuff doesn't really mean anything to anybody. So we've got to really break it down and actually just say to people, this is about our world. This is about our world and how it's changing at the moment. And what we need to do to make our world change a little bit less so that actually we can all live in it forever. And how do you make sure you communicate with impact? We do that by being brilliant and making sure that our reporting is absolutely right, accurate and creatively engaging so that we get mass audiences to it. That's what we have to do. Sky News has really been at the forefront of reporting on the climate crisis. And we've looked at lots of different innovative ways of informing people about it for years. And we have taken a complete stance that it happens, right? There is a broad consensus that it's happening. You know, I think that we need to be unashamed about the fact that the climate is changing, the, the planet is changing. And people need to understand that and we need to inform them of it. So I think the only way to do it is just by being as brilliant as we can be and reaching as many people as we can be so that they really hear and understand that. 
Incidentally, who owns Sky News? Sure. So Sky is owned by an American company called Comcast, who also own NBC in America. Um, they were um, bought by them in 2018. And really, that's that's kind of, it's important to me because they, they own our company. But actually, it hasn't changed anything that we have done. Because I return again and again to the fact that in the UK, as a broadcaster, we are regulated by the Ofcom Broadcasting Code. And we have to do a good job. Otherwise, they come after us. And we have to be balanced and we have to be fair. Sarah Whitehead there, Deputy Head of News Gathering at Sky, who were the first to broadcast a dedicated national daily climate show. Thank you, Sky. Jules. You know, for me as a, as a communicator, let's say, I'm a communicator, um, I, I have to ask myself, is what I'm saying helpful? Is it what the world needs? Is it just adding to the noise? And I really hope, you know, even with this podcast series, we act a little bit like a lighthouse, just guiding people through all the information out there so that they're aware of the facts and what is a fact and their intuition is sharper about what plays into the whole climate emergency situation. And talking of which, there are couple of really great channels. There's one called Covering Climate Now. So if you look at that platform, it's a collection of lots of, of different uh, news hubs, and they celebrate the journalists who are doing the best job to raise awareness. So that's great. And also, I love Desmog. So they're quite literally cutting through the fog of greenwash and navigating us to the right information. So I think, you know, it's, it's really important to look at who we're getting our information from. What's their agenda? That said, here's a question for you then. I put forward earlier in the episode a reason as to why the oil companies might be the shady cabal behind why it's not being talked about. Why would the environmentalists, people like yourself and people who are trying to highlight climate change, why would they be lying? What would be in it for them to be going around screaming, we're all going to die, the ice caps are melting, the sea is rising, look at all these wildfires, don't you see the we're all going to die? What would they get out of it? It's so interesting you say that because... So I've had, I, I have appeared in the past on um, Sky News in the UK, had a, a climate, the daily climate show, and I got so trolled. Uh, on Twitter for just trying to raise awareness and people criticizing you. Lots of gotcha culture, as you'd say, you know, call yourself someone who cares about sustainability, but you fly. And as we know, that's, you know, nuanced. And, and I advocate travel for wealth distribution. Anyway, I shared something on, on LinkedIn, which I genuinely thought was a hel helpful post uh, about how the climate is, is covered. And there was a guy, anyway, he works in a hotel in Puerto Rico, who just wrote climate panic idiot. That's what, that's what he said to me. And I will say, since he wrote that, Puerto Rico has been absolutely slammed by, you know, uh, one of the worst hurricanes on record. I don't know. Is that a little smile on your... <laughs> <laughs> Schadenfreude, don't you dare. Of course not, actually. No. No, it's, it's me reflecting genuinely. So you asked me the question, what's, what would be in it for us? I don't know why people think we, we would be going crazy. But then, you know, then again, I'm sure the intentions of those uh, at Extinction Rebellion who, who made it very difficult for the printing presses to work not so long ago uh, as a protest and to raise awareness about the climate emergency... You know, they mean to be helping the world. Their intention is to raise awareness. Whereas 
that particular week. A lot of us had articles in there about the climate emergency that didn't make it to press, including David Attenborough had a big, a really important um, article in there, which of course didn't get circulated as a result. So I don't know. You tell me what what, what would what might be in our in my interest going around banging on about the climate emergency. I've no idea, and I would love I would love to hear. From people, if if people are going to tweet, if you're going to tweet at Juliet, don't call her a CPI, <laughs> climate panic idiot. Yeah, tweet and tell her why why climate change activists and people worried about the planet why they would be making it up. I'd love to know, and, and I'm not being I'm not being facetious. What would be in it for them? Is there at the sort of the lowest level there might be something in it for the individual because it highlights them, but They'd just be living out of a suitcase, eating canapes and drinking warm booze whilst they go and sit on endless panels, just telling people who don't believe them that the world is ending. That would just be really depressing. And if that was a business model, what a really depressing business model. I don't know. I don't know why people would do it, but it seems to be a valid reason if there are people out there saying that it's not real. Environmentalists have been talking about the challenges that we're experiencing the results of in terms of uh, extreme weather for years, for decades, you know, really. Um, So it's nothing new as a topic. I think what's just important is how do we share the science? Because let's not forget, 99.9% of scientists are agreed that the climate emergency is real and it's caused by human activity. Right. So that is... Uh, that is not in dispute. But what seems to happen a lot is this idea that both sides should be platformed equally. That feels like it's really... Paying lip service to, to Yes, being and really fair. destructive as well. Yeah, it's true. It's like when they, we've just done a segment on potatoes, so we're going to just vox pop someone in the street who goes, oh, I like potatoes. They're great. I don't like potatoes. Terrible. Yeah. And How's that helping the story? Yeah, no, I know, I know. Yeah, it's um, that seems pointless. Another person who's sort of gone rogue and it's gone really badly for him is the American shock jock broadcaster Alex Jones. He had a platform, or still has a platform called Infowars, which I think at one time was earning him about a million dollars a week. And he's the man who was taken to court recently because he said that the uh, the shooting at Sandy Hook was fake and it was being done by actors, crisis actors, in an attempt to repeal America's Second Amendment. I know, I see your face. There's a lot to unpack there. And he's finally gone to court, taken to court by some of the parents from that Sandy Hook tragedy. And in court... Uh, The judge had to reprimand him. I've scribbled it down here. She said, this is not your show. You are under oath and you must tell the truth. Do you understand? And he said, yes, I, I believe I was telling the truth. And she said, that's the problem. Just because you believe something to be true doesn't make it true. Just because you claim something is true doesn't make it true. In my court, you have to prove that something is true. And this quote went viral, you know, and everybody said, this is the standard that we should be at. This is what it's all about. You cannot go around saying stuff because you believe it to be true. You need it. There needs to be a burden of proof on everything that you say. And I think that one side is sort of playing by the rules and that I mean, your lot. 
Us climate botherers. Yes, you tree huggers. <laughs> you're playing by the rules. And then the other side kind of isn't. They're sort of just spouting a lot of unsubstantiated nonsense. And when you try and pin them down, it's like nailing jelly to the floor. They'll wriggle this way and they'll wriggle that way. And again, they're being given these huge platforms by people who think they must have a fair say. You know, we must give both sides equal time. Would you say that's true? Yeah, and I'm also thinking, Simon, you talk about so often, is the gotcha culture. Yeah. This is the real problem, is that people get so trolled, as you say, or even get cancelled if they if they say something that's not quite right or misconstrued and we can all make a mistake and, and sound flippant. I, You know, we, we say things in light here, but obviously we take a lot of what we're talking about very, very seriously. And I think that's the problem. Pe- people become paralysed and too scared to talk about big issues, whether it's it's racial issues, political issues, you know, and then we end up not having balanced, respectful two-way conversations that help us understand situations better. What do you think is the future relationship between sustainability and the media? Big question. So first of all, I'm really happy that at least, well, so many are now leaning into the topic because it was only a few years ago I would pitch a story on sustainability to the travel editor of one of the, the main newspapers. And she's saying, no, Julia, I'm not interested in that. Boring. Nor are our readers. I was like, oh, right. Now that newspaper's running with a lot of sustainability-focused headlines, thank goodness. Um, so I guess it was up to us to make it a bit more of a sexy, enjoyable topic to read. And that's happening. Um, but people people who work in the media have a great responsibility to better understand the interconnectedness of all the contributing factors. I mean, it's crazy. I had an editor say to me the other day, um, you know, I was trying to just explain, you know, it'd be really great if everyone just understood the value of soil, for example, in the conversation. <laughs> I know it sounds boring. She's like, no, Juliet, the digital editor does not need to know about soil. And I was thinking, I wish that you realized it would just be beneficial if we all understood this stuff better, right? As journalists, what do you think? What's your response when I say soil? Hey, look, how do we make soil sexy? So, for example, I actually read a great book called Soil, The Incredible Story of What Keeps the Earth and Us Healthy by Matthew Evans. And it's written in a way that's so easy to digest. So it's not exactly, I mean, you don't believe that, do you? Sorry. (laughs) It's just soil. Soil, easy to digest. But go on. No, but the way the way he tells the story is it makes it feel honestly like a page turner and it, it feels really, really important. I think if you've got some interest in the topic, right, these books really bring it to life. You've probably got to have some in, interest in it. I know I ask this every time, but if there was one thing that you would ask listeners to take away from this episode about the media, what would it be? Because you want them to be more informed But do they do that by listening to the arguments from both sides? Absolutely. Don't just stay in your little echo chamber. You know, if if your persuasion is to read a newspaper that is a little left-leaning, you also have to take in information from sources which are a little right-leaning. You need to have a balanced viewpoint. Um, And I think just don't write off the media. Just, Just take in lots of different information. Think, why are they writing this article? Why are they sharing it? Is it genuinely because they want you to be better informed or is it so that they can I don't know play to an advertiser keep an advertiser happy um I think we're really lucky also. There's so much out there. Think of David Attenborough, how powerful he's been through all those beautiful feel-good documentaries, beautiful visuals, making us care care about the environment more. There's some great things. And if you've got kids, definitely get them to, to watch these kind of programs. Do you want to hear a very, very cute fun fact about David Attenborough? Who on earth wouldn't want to? 
So my very first teacher at school was his daughter, Sue. Sue Attenborough was my first teacher. And he used to come along to the school plays when she put them on and just sit at the back. And we used to go, oh, there's that man off the telly. And it was David Attenborough. You see, if I was a really bad journalist, I'd try and find an angle to that, wouldn't I, rather? Because as a story, it's lovely. What, you try and find the flip side of the story yeah, to the of. like, oh, I bet he was there when he was supposed to be, exactly. I bet he was there wasting licence payers' money and they all thought exactly. he was in the Amazon. <laughs> you know, he had his Bentley running with the engine on outside. <laughs> this is the thing, everyone always wants to find an angle, but actually it's just a lovely little... It's a lovely story. I also love Positive News, that's a great magazine, and Ethos magazine. There are lots of channels out there that are sharing uplifting information. We don't have to doom scroll. You're going to have to make a list out of the back of this episode because people are going to want to know this stuff. Definitely. And you know what I'd love? Please, everyone tweet me at Juliet Kinsman, J-U-L-I-E-T-K-I-N-S-M-A-N. Tweet me publications that I might not know about, niche publications from all over the world that are sharing helpful information when it comes to the climate emergency. And you can tweet me at SLondonUK. Just say hi. It's just nice to hear from people. Um, uh, you're not going to be hashtag CPI. What was that again? Oh, Climate Panic Idiot. <laughs> CPI London. I thought it was like a crime drama. Uh, that would be the name of your difficult second album, wouldn't it? My really difficult second podcast series. Climate Panic Idiot. That would be a great name for a podcast series. <laughs> It is, actually. Juliet, this has been fascinating. I really enjoyed you taking the time out to answer what you must have felt sometimes were very obvious basic questions. And thank you for bearing with me and giving me some great answers. It's been a pleasure. 